0: Well, good morning uh, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Penny and i 'm the pastor here at Christ the King if you 're a guest or visitor if you've maybe this is your first Sunday or, or maybe you 've been coming for a little bit and i haven't had the chance to meet you i 'd love to meet you after the service to welcome you and greet you. Uh, we are glad that you are here uh, this morning. We are looking at first Peter chapter two, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there first uh, Peter two uh, as we 've been going through the book of First Peter, uh, we've been seeing that this is a book that is helping us as, as believers to know what it means to live in exile. That, that's a phrase that Peter has used three times already in this book, and he's going to use it again this morning, that we are exiles, that we are foreigners in this foreign land, that though we all, or, or probably many of us, are American by citizenship, we are citizens of a different nation, of a different world. He's been helping us to see this and, and as we've been thinking about this, it's easy for us to look at this from a purely individualistic understanding. That we think about our individual exilic identity and, and while that's true, there is an aspect to how am I to live? How am I to have hope? There, there, uh, it's, it's not just an individualistic aspect. We don't just have an individualistic responsibility. You see, Peter, we have to remember, is not just writing to individuals, he's writing to a community. He's writing to the church. And so it's important for us not to just ask, how must I live, but how must we live? You see, it's good for us to ask how this community, how this church, is to live in exile. And that's what Peter's taking up in 1 Peter 2. So if you would follow along, we'll read the first 12 verses. Peter writes, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you that you have preserved it and you have given it to us. Thank you for your spirit who leads us into truth and opens our eyes to your will. And so we pray for that will this morning, that your will would be done in this place, that your kingdom would come, and that we would live as your people. Teach us how to do that now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I'd I'd like for us to do something maybe a little bit different, something that uh, might feel a little awkward for some of y'all. But I'd like for you just to look around for a minute. It's okay. Look at the people around you. Like, if you're in the front row, like, like y'all sit in the front row every week, so uh, you might forget what the people behind you look like. So it, it's okay. Like, turn around, and and the people in the back, you know, all you see is the back of people's heads. So it's okay. Look, look around a little bit. And when you, as you look around, what what do you see? Like, what are the things that you notice about one another? Well, I imagine as we look around, we probably see things that are similar, right? People who look like us, right? People maybe of the same build or a similar build, people who are uh, same hair, hair color or hairstyle or same eyes. If you're staying with your family, you're probably looking at what you looked like 30 or 40 years ago, and maybe you're looking up in, in dread of what you're going to look like in 30 or 40 years. <laughs> um, as we're looking around, we see a lot of different things, a lot of things that look very, very similar people who are in similar age as us, similar uh, similar uh, uh, complexion and size and height. And, and we see all these sorts of things, but, but also we see a lot of things that look very different, right? Especially as we start to look a little bit deeper, we, we see people with different clothes, right? Some of us are wearing suits and coats, others of us are wearing jeans. Some of us have open collars and the dapper among us wear bow ties. LAUGHTER And as we start to talk to one another, if if we took the time to get up and move around and start to talk, we'd actually hear, uh, we'd hear of people who have walked with Jesus for 60 plus years, and some who have walked with Jesus for only six months, and maybe some who are still exploring what it even means to walk with Jesus. We'd hear different accents, right? We'd hear accents from the south and from the mountains. We'd hear accents from other countries. We would hear all these sorts of things and we would realize that, that though we have many similar things, right, there, there are actually things that we, differ, that we differ amongst us, right? Things like people who work with their hands every single day and others who work behind desks, people who have lots of letters behind their names and some who have no letters at all. That we have many things in common, but we actually have many things that differ amongst us. So what would bring these people together? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why are we here? Why, why this group of people? What would bring us together? These different people, these different professions, these different political views, these different perspectives on life. What, what would bring us together? Well, uh, a book that I very much enjoy, T.H. White's Once and Future King. Has anyone read that book, The Once and Future King? Oh, it's wonderful. Um, Even if you've never read it, you know the story because it is the story of King Arthur and his round table. It's actually the story where Arthur takes the sword out of the stone. And in T.H. White's version, Merlin is the magician who, who teaches Arthur. In fact, he's been employed by Arthur's employer, um, he's, been, Arthur's, uh, uh, he's not of noble stock, he's just a stable boy, and yet Merlin has been employed by Arthur's benefactor to, to educate his son. But he allows Arthur to be educated as well, and so as, as uh, Arthur takes the sword out of the stone, he starts to apply all the things that he's learned from Merlin. And he decides that all the things that he's learned from Merlin, he's he's going to put into practice. He's not going to rule his kingdom as others have ruled in the past. He's not going to have a kingdom where might makes right. Instead, he had a new vision for his land, a land that would be ruled by justice and truth, a kingdom unlike any other. But in order to encourage this sort of land, this sort of kingdom, Arthur goes about his land and, and he recruits these different knights. These knights who had once rode alone. These knights who had once fought for themselves and he unites them around a common ideal, Camelot. He's going to have them lead this kingdom with truth and grace. They're going to dispense justice and protect the weak. You see, they've been built around a person, a man, Arthur. And they've been built, they've been brought in to be a people, the knights of his round table. And they've been united together for a purpose, to be ambassadors of justice. That is basically the the story, the theme that Arthur is trying to inculcate into his knights, into his kingdom. And that is the story of the church. You see, I began by asking us what brought us together together. What unites us as these people together in this place? Why are we here? And the answer is similar to that of those knights of the round table. We have been brought by a person, a man. And we are being built into a people and we are being built for a purpose. That's what 1 Peter 2 tells us. That the person, the man we are built upon is Christ Christ. That we are being built together as his people, as his church. And as we come together as his people, we are built for the purpose of others. That's what I want us to see in this passage. That we are first built upon a person. We are built upon Christ. And Peter talks about Jesus in four different ways in our passage. We're going to move through them a little quickly. But but the first thing he says about Jesus is that he is the stone that we are built upon. Look at verses 6 and 7. Peter writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is that cornerstone. Verse 7 is quoting Psalm 118. Now this isn't the first time that Peter quotes Psalm 118. It's the first time he quotes it in this book. But if you remember, in Acts chapter 4, Peter is giving one of his Acts sermons. And in that sermon, he cites Psalm 118. And so clearly this image of Jesus being the rock, being the cornerstone, being the foundation upon which the church is built, is an image that Peter particularly enjoys. And I can't help but think that maybe Peter likes it because he, knows he remembers what his name is. You remember what his name is? He's the rock. Right, that's what Jesus said, Simon Peter. I call you Peter, right? And upon this rock. Now we know, um, we know that Jesus isn't saying that Peter is upon the rock that the church will be built, but it's his profession. That's it's another sermon. But regardless, Peter was that rock, and so I can't help but speculate that perhaps Peter emphasizes that that though his name is the rock, there is a rock, a stone that is even greater than him that he keeps bringing this imagery back up when he speaks and when he writes because he wants his hearers, he wants the church to know that it is not upon Peter or another man that we are built, but it is upon Christ. He is our cornerstone. He is our foundation. And this stone that we are built upon, he is precious before God. That's the second thing that Peter says in verses 4 and 6. He tells us that Jesus is in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter's indicating that Jesus is unique, he's set apart. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to hear that Peter will say that we are these living, like we are like living stones that are being built together. And as dignifying as that is, what he's indicating here is that there is a stone that is even greater than these living stones that we are. That Christ is the first and chosen. He is the precious cornerstone, and Jesus is precious because he gave what was most precious of all. He gave himself. He gave himself. He gave his life so that we would live. That's why Christ is the precious cornerstone upon which we are built, because he could do what no one else could do. He is precious before God. He is the chosen cornerstone because he is the only one who takes sin upon himself and dies for his enemies He gives of himself so that we would have life. That's why he's precious. But Jesus didn't just give his life and death. He also took it up in resurrection. You see, he's not just a stone, but Peter says he's a living stone. That's what he says in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's a living stone. Now, that's a strange phrase, isn't it, if we think about it? I mean, because stones aren't alive. Stones don't breathe, they don't move, they just sit there. They're not living, and yet Christ is a living stone. He isn't lifeless, He lives. I mean, it is true, yes, that his body was broken and his lifeless, dead body was laid to rest in a tomb of rock and, and the stone covered the mouth of the grave, but, but the grave could not contain him. Though he had died, he rose again to new life. Right? When the stone was rolled away, what did they find? Not a dead prophet, but a risen Savior. He is the living stone. He is the living stone, and it is because he is the stone that lives, that is precious, that we have mercy. I mean in verse 10, Peter says, You once did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what has changed? What has changed is Christ. It is because of him that mercy has come. It is because of him that grace has been bestowed upon us. It is because of him that we now have life. And this is the good news for those who believe. But for those who don't believe, this living stone is a stone of stumbling. Again, that's what Peter says. This is the fourth thing that we see, that he's a stumbling block. Look at verses 7 and 8. Peter writes, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, what Peter's saying is that those who disobey this rock, they have not been built upon him. That they disobey God's word and because of their disobedience, they face dishonor and shame. Now, I recognize that this is a doctrine that, that in our um, modern day is not championed. those outside the church and even those within the church sometimes don't like to talk about it right that that there are some who will face shame and dishonor at the coming of our lord jesus and yet we must talk about it not all will be built upon the cornerstone of christ for some they will stumble and they will trip and they will find dishonor and shame Peter says, as they were destined to do. Now we don't have time to go into all the implications of that little phrase and to all the questions that I'm sure is running through all of your minds. As we talked in Sunday school just a few minutes ago, I alluded to this verse and everyone went, ugh. Because <laughs> we knew we didn't have time to talk about it and we know the implications of it. But what Peter seems to be doing here is, is something that is often hard for us to fully comprehend. You see, as reform people, if, if you're not new, if you're new to Presbyterianism, the, the reform tradition is the theological tradition that we adhere to. The reform tradition believes in the absolute sovereignty over God over all things, of God over all things, the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, not just our salvation, but also the absolute sovereignty over those who do not believe. And yet, they still disobeyed. Do you see that? Peter's not divorcing the absolute sovereignty of God with man's responsibility. He actually paradigmatically unites them together. And he doesn't seem to really mind what seems to be strange and unusual questions and an inability for us to comprehend it. In fact, Peter makes this same sort of reference in Acts chapter 2 when he talks about the death of Jesus. He said, wicked man, you put him to death. And God foreordained it. And then he just moved on. like it's, No one else is going to have questions, but Peter is uniting those two things together. And so we need to be okay with that. We need to be comfortable with the fact that God is sovereign over all things and yet man is still responsible, that that they have rejected God's chosen stone. That they were destined to do it and that they did it themselves. But for those who believe. But for those who believe, there is no shame. That's what Peter says in verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And That is beautiful, isn't it? That if you are trusting in Christ, no matter how great your sins are, No matter what it is that you just confessed earlier today. You know, sometimes I think that that we we maybe need to just slow down in our confession. I need to slow down in my confession and think about the sins that I have actually committed because sometimes I just let the words roll off my tongue. I sinned against you. I had thoughts I shouldn't have had. I said things I shouldn't have said and, and just kind of move on. But when we allow it to sit, we know that shame, don't we? But God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in our shame. Because after we confess, we hear these words of grace and pardon. That because the stone that was rejected is living. Because the stone that was buried is alive. There is no dishonor for those who believe. There is no shame for those who are built upon the rock that that for those who are resting on this chief cornerstone, we will one day be ushered into the presence of God and we will know with certainty what we know in part now, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there is no shame for those who believe. And so we have to ask, what do you believe? What are you built upon? What, what would the manner of your life say you are built upon? What is your cornerstone? Is it your good deeds? Is it the stone of your intellect? Is it the rock of your professional accomplishments? Is it your seemingly Rockwellian family? <laughs> or is it Christ? Christ? You see, friends, the church is built upon Christ and Christ alone. But We are not just built upon Christ, we are also built together. It's the second thing I want us to see, that we are built together. That's what verse 5 tells us. Peter writes, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let's think about this metaphor because Peter's applying it to us now. He's used this metaphor to Jesus, but now it's to us. But, but if we think about a brick or a stone, a, a brick by itself isn't very helpful. And a stone in our field, in our lawn, right? When we're cutting the grass, a stone is a nuisance, right? We pick it up and we throw it away when it's laying there. A brick by itself, a stone on its own, they, they are pains in the neck. <laughs> They're things we trip over and we stub our toes on and we want to get rid of. But, but when they are formed together... When a brick is fitted beside another brick, when a stone is shaped so that it sits alongside another stone, we have schools and cathedrals and homes. And that's what Peter's saying about us that God is making us into a spiritual house in which all the bricks are needed. You know, the other day I asked the mason at the building where we're building the, the church building. I asked him how many bricks are being used, because there's a lot of bricks going up if you've driven by, right? There's tons of bricks. Um, and, and so I asked him how many, and he didn't know the exact number, but he's pretty sure it's nearly about half a million. So nearly half a million bricks are going up to, to form this, this structure, right? And every single one of them is needed. You see, if, if they only use 400,000, if they left some gaps out, right, it... The, the structure would be unsafe. It wouldn't be sound. It would also be ugly, right? We'd have these big gaps, and you know, people like Regina and Emily would be mad at us because it's not beautiful, and rightfully so. And rightfully so. We need every single one of those bricks. We need every single one of them in order for the building to be built and for it to be structurally sound and for it to be beautiful, and that is God's church. That is you. But I wonder if we really believe that. I wonder if some of you are sitting there thinking, well, sure, sure, we need a pastor. We need music, music people. We need leaders. But, but me? I'm not so sure. And yet what Peter's word tells us here, what God's word tells us, is even you and even me That this spiritual home that God is creating, it needs every brick and stone. He doesn't create a building, a spiritual house made up simply of elders and deacons and ministry leaders and everyone else gets to visit. He says, you're part of this house. Every stone is needed, as the New Testament theologian Karen Jobs put it, Job, excuse me, put it. She says, The imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. You see, friends, we express what it means to be this home, to be this church by being united together. By being united together around God's word, that's why we gather for worship and why we go to Sunday school. To be united together around prayer, that's why we pray for one another. Right just this past week, many of us prayed for Marguerite Stilly and her surgery. And many of us prayed as the Hankos went off to Boston to see the specialist. And even some of us who, who maybe have only had a passing conversation with Marguerite and don't know all the details of the Hankos, we still prayed because we're united together. You see, this spiritual house isn't built around how well we know the details of one another's lives. It is built around Christ. He is the one who unites us together. And that, that is why we can express our unity in praying for one another, in caring for one another, in celebrating jobs and births, in weeping over joblessness and disease. See, it's not me, it's We. We are built into this spiritual house. This is part of our new identity. But this identity doesn't stop there. It goes on. Look at what Peter says in verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear what Peter's saying about you? He's saying that if you are part of this spiritual house, if you are trusting in Christ, you're not a beggar. You're royalty. He says that that you are not nameless, you are a people. He's telling us that though we are exiles, we are citizens of a holy nation. That this is our new identity. A change has taken place in our lives, a change only because of God's grace. You see, God doesn't, doesn't love you because you are precious, but you are precious because he loves you. Our incorporation into the people of God is because of what God has done. Not because of how great we are or because of what we have done, but because of how great he is. We have mercy because he's merciful. We are chosen because he has chosen us. We are a holy nation Because he has made us clean. This is what God has done for you and for me. And what's incredible about this is that this new people, this holy nation, it's not limited to just the people who are in this room right now. It's not limited just to the people who come up and take membership vows and those who will take membership vows in years to come. No, this holy nation that we are now a part of is not limited by ethnicity or language. It's not limited by time or geography. But this new nation that God has brought us into, it includes Christians who have come thousands of years before us, and it will include those who come thousands of years after. It includes believers living in the remotest parts of the world and Christians worshiping down the road right now at Cave Spring Baptist and at Church of the Holy Spirit and at Westminster Presbyterian and at Bethel AME. It includes all those who are built upon Christ. That we are being united together. Spiritually speaking, it means that we have a deeper bond with the Christian in South Sudan than we do the non-Christian American who lives beside us. Because we are united together around this rock, this cornerstone. It doesn't negate the the expression of God's church that is here this morning. Instead, what it does is it transcends these walls. And it includes all those from every tribe and tongue, every race and ethnicity, all those who call upon the Lord. That that is the house that God is building together. And he's building it not for ourselves, but he's building it for the purpose of others. It's the last thing I want us to see the end of verse 9, Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's possession. And why are we this? He tells us, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, what Peter is telling us is that one of the purposes of the church is to be a place that exists for those who who are not a part of us yet. That we are to declare to those who are in darkness where the light is found. That we are to proclaim that a stone other than Christ is brittle and weak. That we are to announce where mercy is found and to be dispensers of that mercy. That we would welcome others in so that they would hear the gospel and believe. That they would see the light and the goodness of God. That we would proclaim the truth of who God is. We would speak it with our mouths. We would declare that Christ is the king. That it's not just a name on a sign or on our bulletin, but he is the king. That he is the one who rules, that he is the savior. That we would declare that with our mouths, but we would also declare it with our lives. Verse 11, Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There's that phrase again, exiles and sojourners, in case we are forgetting, this world is not our home. Peter is telling us that as we live in the midst of this world, we are supposed to live differently, and the way that we live differently means that we will live lives of abstinence. That we would abstain from the passions of the flesh. And that's what Peter says in verse 1. He tells us some of these passions, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And we know that we live in a world where these are common. Hey, I mean, think, think about our, our, our leaders, right? the leaders in our world. Think about them. I mean, we are just so accustomed to them lying to us that we expect it to be normal. right? We are shocked when we find a man or a woman of integrity. Or think about when we turn on the TV and we are bombarded, we are confronted by, by marketing campaigns that seek to encourage envy of, of a neighbor so that we would buy their product and we wouldn't envy them anymore, we'd envy someone else. Or we turn on any news source and we find people's names and reputations slandered so that an agenda can be, adva- be, an, be advanced. I mean, that's the world we live in, but sadly, friends, oftentimes Christians, the people of God, have embodied this way of living as well. Sadly to say, sometimes it is Christians who engage in gossip and in slander so that we can advance our own agendas. Sadly to say, we're ones who envy one another, even maybe people in this room. But Peter is saying that is not for us. That is not how God intended us to live. See, as exiles, we are not to embrace this manner of living. We are to abstain from it. And instead, we are to live honorable lives before the world by abstaining, but also living consistently with the gospel. Look what Peter says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Gentiles, thats like code word for the world, for those who do not believe. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is referring to that day when Jesus will return. And Peter has this expectation that when he returns, that as we live out the beauty of the gospel, that some who once derided us and said that our way of living was wicked or strange or bizarre or evil that they one day will be attracted to the very gospel that they once opposed. That is the vision that Peter has, that they will one day see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation because we lived honorable lives before them. Peter's simply saying what Jesus himself said. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said to his disciples, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your heavenly Father. That they may see your good deeds. That that the world would look upon the way that we live. The way that we live together and that the way that we live before them. And that they would see a testimony to the beauty and the goodness of God. That the world would look upon us and they would see that, that the way that we parent. And the way that we love our neighbors. And the way that we go about our work. And the way that we interact with one another. And the way that we speak. And the way that we live would be contrary to the world around us. That we would actually live as a contradiction to the world in which we inhabit. That we would look like exiles. That we would look strange and bizarre. I wonder if that's what the world sees of us. I wonder if we ask our neighbors, our non-Christian neighbors, what are Christians about? I imagine we would hear a lot of things about about the things that we oppose and the things that we, we speak out against. And some of those things, rightfully so, we need to hold to what is true and right. But would they lead with their honorable men and women of integrity? Those people they love well. I hope more of those people move onto my street. <laughs> what a wonderful idea! What an incredible vision. That we would live in such a way before our neighbors that they would actually want more of us. And that's the vision that Peter has. That we would be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. That we would live in such a way that others would see in us a world that is different from the world that they inhabit. That this spiritual house would be a testimony to the wonder and beauty and glory of God. You know, the the Scottish theologian, William Barclay, he he tells this story about uh, the king of Sparta. Sparta, that great Greek city, that power. Supposedly, the king of Sparta used to boast to visiting monarchs about the strength of the the Spartan wall, about how, how this wall protected the city. And so one visiting king was there, and he was looking around the city, and he He didn't see a wall surrounding it, and so he asked the king of Sparta, he said, where are these renowned walls of Sparta? And the Spartan king turned, and he pointed to his men. And he said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. These are the bricks, the stones that protect our city. And friends, as the world looks at the church, there to see the walls of God's spiritual house. Every man a brick. every woman, a stone, every child, a part of that wall, a spiritual house that is built upon the cornerstone, that is built together as a spiritual home, not as a wall of defense, of protection, but as a home that hospitably welcomes others in, so that they too would give glory to God. Let's pray. Our God, and our King, we do thank you. That you have not left us alone, but you have given us your son. That you have not left us alone, but you have given us your spirit. That you have not left us alone, but you have given us one another. And so we ask that as you build us into this spiritual house, that you would help us to be united around your word, to be united in prayer, and to be united in purpose, in proclaiming the glory of our Savior, our chief cornerstone, the one who has died and who is risen again. Help us to proclaim the gospel of Christ and of his kingdom. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen.